Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with a walking DC Comics encyclopedia, a professor as well, and a comic book writer in his own right. Scott Beatty, how are you today? I'm good, RC. Thanks for having me. How are you? I, uh, you know, all things considered, I can't complain. You know, we get to talk comics while we're on lockdown, so it might as well be just hanging out in the comic shop. <laughs> Very good. You know. My voice is a couple octaves lower than normal because uh, my my family has, I think, uh, suffered through uh, COVID nineteen, according to our hospital. But uh, we are on the mend after about four weeks. Well, I'm glad that that you're on the mend. You know, it's the worst diet possible, but you probably lost about 10, 15 pounds from it. So congratulations on that. Oh, well, thank you. you know, There's <laughs> nothing like uh, hitting your target weight under lockdown. <laughs> yeah. And without a home gym. <laughs> uh, for people that don't know, you wrote uh, Batman, The Ultimate Guide to the Dark Knight, Catwoman, The Visual Guide to the Feline F- Fatale, JLA, The Ultimate Guide to the Justice League, Wonder Woman, The Ultimate Guide to the Amazon Princess, and so on and so forth. Um, what's it like going to a convention and you just hear fans talk? Because, you know, most artists aren't known by face these days. And wanting the or having the urge to try to correct them and go, actually, no, it's this. And then, you know, like resisting that temptation. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, it's been a while since I've been to a convention and I, I, I actively wonder if we'll ever have conventions again after this. So it, it's kind of a weird question. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun to sort of just listen to the debate in the background. Um, it's the kind of stuff that I always wanted to do as a kid with other kids who, you know, actively shunned me because I was a comic geek and we really didn't have those then. I mean, we're, we're, you know, we are at a cultural high point for comics. So it's, to me, it's, it's really gratifying to hear, you know, the schoolyard debate, you know, at the comic shop or at the park or in line for coffee, you know, who would win in a fight, Batman or, you know, your dad. <laughs> You know, and you turned it into a career in the 90s at the ultimate peak, especially when Image Comics was coming out and starting the re- the whole comic revolution of basically turning into rock and roll uh, or, you know, rock and roll comics or rock stars in the industry. Well, I really didn't hit my, my I mean, I really didn't enter the industry myself as a freelancer until uh, 1999, 2000. So uh, previous to that, I worked at uh, Wizard Entertainment. I, I started out... I was hired out of grad school um, to, to basically launch Toy Fair magazine. And uh, as we ramped up to that, I was editor of the Wizards toy column in the, the regular Wizards magazine, and I was copy editing for them. So I kind of saw, like, the, the 90s, you know, the bubble, you know, expand, 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 and then finally, you know, burst and, you know, the big bang uh, around that time. So I, I sort of, you know, got to see the, the comics industry from that side. And while I was working at Wizard, I made contacts that helped me to break in to, you know, DC Comics. So it's, uh, you know, I guess one hand washes the other in that way. Right. And it, it, it's definitely been a great connection for you. I mean, you are the walking encyclopedia at this point. Uh, has oh, well, there, <laughs> well, how many guides have you written? Like 15? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, a ton of them. You know, I actually I, I just finished a uh, 150 pages each. One is the Marvel mini book of heroes and the Marvel mini book of villains. 
so inside editions, and each one has 150 heroes and villains, respectively. But the, what's cool about these books is rather than like the oversized ultimate guides that I wrote for Dylan and Kindersley way back in the day, these books are literally palm-sized. I mean, they'll fit in your back pocket. So I, I don't know. It's probably the smallest like font imaginable that can actually still be seen with the naked eye. Uh, but e- each one has, you know, it's a it's a bio for the character, plus it has a power scale that we worked hard with Marvel Comics to be the first place you'll see, like, you know, um, speed, durability, energy, things like that. Like, they, they have it on the Marvel website, but because the Marvel website's curated by fans more so than the editors, this will be the first place where you actually can tell who's stronger, you know, Thanos or um, the Beyonder, that sort of thing. I dig it, man. It's kind of like the old trading cards back in the early 90s. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, but, you know, it's, again, it's all in one place. So, you know, these things that were supposed to come out this year, um, August and October, respectively, but with the coronavirus, uh, Insight smartly pushed it back, and the Amazon listings currently have them coming out January 2021. So if uh, they're all done, they're in, they're in the can, but if uh, things improve and the economy opens up safely, without people dying, then, you know, maybe we can get these up before the end of the year. Yeah, I've been, I've been talking to friends in the medical field, and some are saying, oh, we should be fine by May. Others are like, I'll see you at Christmas. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny because my kids, we went to, my, my father-in-law passed away before the uh, before the lockdown, and so we were, were actually able to have a non-virtual funeral for him. And even though we practiced social distancing and, and used hand-washing and everything, my kids got sick like two days later and had been sick, you know, three to four weeks. And so they had the corona test about two weeks ago. And while both tested negatively here in Pennsylvania, which has a problem, like one in three uh, tests are coming false negatives, the hospital called us back a day later and said, look, we're listing you as inconclusive and putting you on anti-pneumonia drugs because you've been sick for four weeks and it doesn't make sense that it's not corona. So you know, having suffered through what we think is COVID-19 at home, I, I got to say that anything you can do to avoid getting it and, you know, helping other people to get it, please do, because it's been rough. I'm, I'm just, just starting to feel better. Well, I do remember you to, right. I do remember you told me you were coughing up blood at one point. Yeah, about two weeks ago. That's right before I got on the anti-pneumonia uh, medication. So just, you know, the cough lasts forever. It, uh, you know, fevers. You know, we all had, like, different versions of all the symptoms, but, you know, on the rubric of the different symptoms, we had everything. So that's why the hospital said, look, we think you have it, so, you know, quarantine for 14 more days. So we've been on, you know, double secret lockdown here at my house, and it's, uh, you know, it's from what you see on the news, I mean, it's really serious. So if, uh, you know, if you can do anything to social distance, you know, have things delivered to you, practice uh, wiping things down, you know, I hate to sound like a public service announcement, but, you know, we all got to help each other. I mean, you know, you look on the TV right now and we're seeing real superheroes mm-hmm. in uh, the medical field that are putting their lives on the line. So, you know, those guys are, uh, and, and also police and firemen and all that. So those are the, the people that are inspired and uh, we, we got to do what we can to help them. Well, the only silver lining I see out of all of this is that it's going to make us a bit more sociable with each other and the fact that, we're going to be nicer to one another instead of just completely polarized by political views that we've had the past eight plus years of red team versus blue team. And I think this is the the one that even the playing field where it doesn't matter if you're red team or blue team, it matters that you're a human being and we have to look out for each other. 
Yeah, I would hope so. I, I would hope. I, I see a lot of, you know, in the last few years, I hear, see a lot of people talking about the fact that, uh, you know, calling out what they describe as social justice warriors. And, and I always am quick to say that, you know, every superhero is a social justice warrior. So, you know, I, I, having been, you know, raised and weaned on this kind of literature where, you know, people do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, it's uh, hoping that we all learn a good lesson. You know, yeah. We're saying that we're not going to have handshakes after this, but, you know, I'm, I'm all of the mind that, you know, use your words, you know, right. <laughs> start talking to people at a distance. Well, we we just brought that up for a second, you know, and with the social justice warrior thing. I think some fans have felt that it hasn't been subtle in the display of new characters coming in. It's kind of been like, you know, being smashed over the head with a Harley Quinn size mallet of this is what this character is supposed to be. This is what they're supposed to represent. And this is why we're letting you know that they're in this comic. Deal with it. And I see both sides yeah. of the argument because we do need new characters. Yeah, and, and you know, I think that the, when we make new characters that represent, you know, either the, the, the diversity of our population, I think that's much better. I mean, I hate it, and it's only because, you know, we have these established characters, and I know that people are going to rail against it when we take, a, you know, an established character and say, okay, everything you knew about that character is wrong. You know, having written encyclopedias about these characters, continuity is important to the fan base. Mm -hmm. So when you find out, hey, you know, this character, you know, uh, you know, swings a different way. Well, that's fine, uh, but except that you're going to alienate part of the fan base in order to appeal to a new part of the fan base. And right. you've got to find a way to do it. And I think with new characters, we can. And one of the things that's, that I think uh, that Marvel has done more successfully than DC at this point is that they recognize that every era, every generation has, you know, an age. Mm -hmm. You know, we go gold, silver, bronze, et cetera, modern, whatever we're going to call it, right. platinum. So, you know, these heroes are, are old enough that we can come out with a new, you know, back character that hits those checkboxes that appeals to a more diverse audience. Right. And, and there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I mean, comics are, you know, they're a product of their time and they reflect mm -hmm. the social mores of the time, but we're in changing times and we can reflect the changes as well. Right. Like when uh, Simon Baz came out for DC Comics, I was like, hey, we finally got one. You know, a, a Middle Eastern character that wasn't a villain or a yeah. terrorist or something else. But, of course, his very first act was a terrorist act and blowing up the facility. I was like, really? And I know, you know, Jeff and Lebanese. He had, a, and he had and, a gun strapped to his hip. Yeah, right. I, I never got, quite got, like, why does Green Lantern need a gun? You know? Well, I had that old, it's like Star Trek Five. Why does God need a spaceship? Right. Well, I talked to Mark Irwin, whose mom's also Lebanese, and I said, Mark, look at you, look at me, look at Jeff, and then look at Simon. Um, Simon doesn't look like us. And he's like, well, initially we were going to make him half black, and then we just decided to make him, you know, full Lebanese, but the proofs had already gone to print, so that's why, you know, his pigmentation was the way it was. And I was like, okay, fair enough. You know, because I was like, he looks like he's from Yemen. Yeah. He doesn't look like he's from Lebanon. So, like, what's the deal? Well, there's nothing wrong with making a running change, too. I right. Uh, just yesterday, I was looking at New Teen Titans number two, mm -hmm. and the facsimile edition that DC just published, and Starfire was uh, two inches shorter than Dick Grayson in that issue, like before right. they decided to make her, you know, like 64. Right. And, uh, you know, it's, it's like, okay, so like there is a change there. She even says in dialogue that her planet is further from the sun when she's basking in a bikini, when we know later that she comes from a tropical world. So, you know, editors and writers, they change things on the fly. Yeah. Um, but I, I think if, if you're going to commit to a character, 
uh, that has you know a certain ethnicity or religion, <laughs> then then commit to it. You know, don't don't try to don't try to you know. Uh, I'm try. I was about to say whitewash, uh, but I mean dilute it. I think right. is probably the better term. Yeah. Well, you know, and and see, I think the thing with the the DC Comics characters, like when I wrote the Batman Ultimate Guide, someone uh, was trying to find some little subtlety in that, and in something I wrote in the Batman Secret Files to say that oh, it's clear that Batman is Catholic. Mm-hmm. And I responded and said, well, no, there's nothing in there that says that. I mean, he is, right. you know, he comes from a, a white Anglo-Saxon background, but I, I purposely avoided it like many writers have avoided it over the years, because if you don't know what Batman is religiously, then he can be Batman to you, no matter right. what. Right. And if we're going to put him any anything remotely close to Catholicism, it probably would have been Anglicanism if he's going to be a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. But then his cousin is Jewish, so then his mother has to be Jewish on, on one side. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it, you know, like issues of religion and politics have been wisely avoided in comics for mm-hmm. a long time. And, you know, I, I think that if you're a superhero, then you're apolitical mm-hmm. for the most part. And you are inclusive when it comes to religion because you are apolitical and, you know, every life matters, not mm-hmm. just, you know, your team. Right. So, you know, um, I remember for for the longest time when Barry Allen was listed as Jewish because Green Lantern would always wish him a happy Hanukkah on the holiday specials or the holiday comics. Right, right. You know, and that's never been mentioned, I think, since the 80s at this point. You know, like, yeah, Barry's back and that's that. Yeah, and I wonder if it's a, a function of, you know, DC being published in more countries that they have to, you know, they try to avoid that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I always appreciated when I would get to know that little nuance of a character. Yeah. Like, wow, okay, so now I, I understand, you know, where you're coming from or what your perspective is. Yeah. Um, I had written a column a, a few years ago when uh, the um, Aqualad from the uh, Young Justice series was incorporated into the DC Comics, and we found out he was gay. And I, I titled it Three Pages of Gay because apparently – in most of the, in most series, when a character comes out, we find out within three pages that they're gay. The person they're they're in love with either rejects them, and they have to, and they become a sort of asexual character, or accepts them, and then they die six panels later. You know, like it was introduced, yeah, the, you yeah. know, and I was just like, why does that that trend happen? You know, because either it's a key component of what the character is, or you're just doing it to sit there and go, hey, we'll remember that he's gay in six years from now when we decide to marry so-and-so off. Yeah, it's a weird corollary to the girlfriend in the refrigerator. Yeah. You know, where a character's, you know, significant other has to be has to die horribly in, in, in a really sadomasochistic way. Yeah, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I think some writers have a, a, just a big problem with depicting any sort of sexuality um, in the comics uh, other than straight. I mean, look how many years Wonder Woman couldn't have a boyfriend, right. you know, like, like there was, a, you know, an attempt to sexualize her and then desexualize her. And, and then the only appropriate boyfriend would, would then be Superman. You know, right. they had to float with that sort of thing, which to me as a comic reader, I'm like, well, what about Lois? I mean, Lois is hot. You know, <laughs> why, you know, why, why is it that it has to be that pairing? Um, right. Because, you know, you've got these two characters and you can't imagine them with anybody else but somebody of equal strength or, mm-hmm. or popularity. So. Right. And the fact that Wonder Woman being with Steve Rogers, you know, well, they visited that in uh, New 52 where, uh, you know, he felt inadequate to be with her. 
Well, that's his problem. <laughs> right. No, but I mean, you know, but I mean, it plays you know, into that yeah. that insecurity, and a lot of people have that insecurity. Sure, sure. I mean, you know, if you start to think about it too hard, and that's the problem with comic logic. You know, that if Superman literally has impenetrable skin, then certainly he could only be with somebody who is Kryptonian without, right. you know, hurting them. Um, you know, not not to go beyond PG thirteen. Right. But you know, it, you know, love is love. Um, right. And I think that it's nice to see it explored, you know, much more uh, profoundly in comics. But, you know, these are also characters that, you know, part of their, their at least for me growing up in like the, the 70s and mm-hmm. the Bronze Age, is that some of that stuff was left off panel. Right. Uh, wisely. You look at all James Bond movies. Like, <laughs> you think that, that Bond is, is, you know, these films are really salacious when they're not. It fades to black right. when Bond, you know, kisses and then beds, you know, them to tell. And then, right. you know, it's stayed in the next morning, you know, as the villains come and knocking at the door. Right. So, you know, it, it's, I don't know. I mean, it, it, the problem with, I think, comics right now is that because they're in so many different media, and I use Harley Quinn as an example, you know, on uh, DC Superhero Girls, Harley Quinn is a mischievous, you know, high school prankster. Right. And then you skip forward a couple levels of the genres and you get to movies like Suicide Squad and she's in stripper shorts and, you know, is, you know, fulfilling like these weird fantasies for, for you know, whatever label, le- level of fandom out there. Mm. So you've got a hypersexualized Harley on one side and then you've got a, a, a Harley that's safe for six-year-olds. Right. But then the six-year-olds see the other media and then you have to be awkward, you know, as a parent explaining, well, how can there be two different Harleys, you know, right. or three different Harleys? So. Well, that's why we have the multiverse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you know, <laughs> when it functioned like that, but, you know, it, as you famously a few years ago when uh, Chuck Dixon and I were writing uh, Joker Last Laugh, and I, I published this on my blog, and it's, it's not, you know, it's not a state secret, but we were going to kill the Joker mm-hmm. and have the Joker be replaced by a new Joker. And uh, an editor at DC, who shall remain nameless, uh, came back to us and said, you can't kill the Joker. And we're like, why? And he said, well, the Joker sells peanut butter. And, you know, this is in the mid-90s or early, or, excuse me, the, the, the early 2000s towards, you know, before 2005. So at that point, you know, DC, before Warner Brothers took over, realized that these are characters that are licensed, you know, as pajamas at Target, mm-hmm. as, you know, Legos and things like that. And then a few years later, you know, in the Batman comics, the Joker cuts off his own face and reattaches it with a belt. And I, I, I literally called up the editor. He told me he couldn't kill the Joker. And I said, you know, WTF. Right. <laughs> and of course, it's just, it's, it reflects the changing times, mm-hmm. you know? When did the Joker sell so, peanut butter? Well, I mean, I think it's just, that's just a metaphor. Oh, you know? okay. was, <laughs> at, at some point, you know, there was probably like Batman and, you know, Joker peanut butter that was mixed with great jelly, you know, just to get that uh, purple color in. Gotcha. Yeah, it, it only sold in, like, Austria or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's you know, Batman cereal, that sort of thing. But, right. you know, the things the things we wanted to do in last half now seem tame in comparison to a lot of the stuff you see in comics. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, breaking off with Mac and, right. and uh, you know, uh, just all the level of that that is more acceptable because the rating systems have changed so drastically. Right. And then at one point, after you mentioned that the Joker had stapled his own face back on, you know, there was, uh, that we found out in, what was it, the Omega Wars, that we ended up having three Jokers, and it wasn't just the one. 
Yeah, yeah, I still forgot my brain on that. Or the Dark Side Wars. Sorry. And, yeah, so there's all, all sorts of stuff like that. Well, you worked with Chuck, and, you know, Ch- Chuck's put out some great stuff as well. But you also got to work on The Phantom, and you wrote the story, The Last Phantom for Dynamite. What's the transition yeah. like going from, you know, one of the big two, you know, that's owned by a major conglomerate like Warner Brothers to an indie house like, like Dynamite? Um, it's really no different in terms of the writing. Uh, it's just the characters. I wasn't a big fan of the Phantom. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not that I, did, I, I didn't dislike him. I just didn't know him as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I can just get in a shameless plug real quick, uh, in the interest of social distancing for like the last two weeks or three weeks, I've been putting up comics content on my, my blog. Mm-hmm. And I just posted the last, uh, or the first two issues of the last Phantom in their entirety, uh, just for fans to read. Um, the thing about Dynamite that was, was interesting is that I got to work with different characters that, you know, didn't have... Uh, I, I got to play with the continuity. Essentially, Alex Ross uh, was sort of the godfather on both The Last Phantom and on uh, Beth Rogers and then uh, Ming the Merciless that I did for, for Dynamite. And so our goal was to sort of reinvent the characters for a 21st century audience, and Alex provided the character designs and the covers and sort of, you know, it was kind of like the guiding influence of like what he wanted to see with it. And with The Last Phantom, we sort of looked at it and said, you know, this character is one of the original costume superheroes. I mean, he's, he's back there with Superman and Batman and the Crimson Avenger, right. but has never really achieved the level of popularity here in the United States that Batman and Superman have. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if you go elsewhere, you go to Sweden or Australia, and he's more popular than Batman. So mm-hmm. our goal is to kind of dust it off and kind of reinvent the character. And, and my idea for the series was, you know, he's a generational character. There's a kit walker every generation. Right. You know, the firstborn son has to take over the mantle of Phantom. And my idea was, well, what happens when you have somebody who doesn't want to be the Phantom? And so we had to engineer a story in which, you know, he's forced into being, you know, the last Phantom, mm-hmm. where he considers that, you know, he's going to do the job and then be done. And, you know, in 12 issues, we kind of explored the whole Phantom myth and, and, uh, and that sort of thing. And I had a good time on it. I, I really enjoyed uh, kind of uh, exploring the Phantom fan base. And uh, I, I think by the end, I, I was starting to win them over, but it really didn't achieve the level of sales to, you know, to go beyond a year and an annual. But I'm pretty proud of the stories. I think I, I, I did some uh, interesting things. I was just looking at issue number two. And it starts out in the, the skull cave with the current phantom kind of training his son. And it's far and away uh, a harder training regimen than Robin ever had to endure with that. You know, it's at the level of child abuse, but it just shows you just, uh, you know, what the character's all about. I mean, this is your job. You're going to do it no matter what. You know, go. You know, and uh, what's it got? You also didn't have to worry about selling pajamas at Target. No, no, not at all. I mean, it was just about, you know, we, we, I, I think we had a rated T for teens, so, you know, we got to get away with a little more violence mm-hmm. in it. And, and I don't mean like when I write stories, I don't, I'm not consciously thinking of the level of violence. Uh, I certainly think about the four letter words because I grew up, you know, doing the comics code seal of authority. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, dialogue, if it, if it serves the dialogue great, if you're just dropping an expletive to, you know, to titillate the audience, then you, know, you can do it more creatively. Right. Um, 
kind but, of, uh, you know, yeah, it, it was, uh, you know, I, I don't know, I had a good time with it because it was really a blank slate. So I kind of got a chance to put my mark on that. And, uh, you know, Buck Rogers was a different take. And uh, Merciless, which was uh, the origin of Ming Merciless, was different too. So. And, and he yeah. did a show like Holmes Year One there as well. So. Well, Dynamite's been putting out some great stuff, so I, I give them credit for what they've done over the past 15, 20 years as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, Nick Bellucci has, uh, you know, he's, I hesitate to say under the radar, but, um, you know, he, he has been able to scoop up some characters that are, I think, on the fringes of fandom mm-hmm. and really just let the creators cut loose on them. Right. So um, I, I, I just posted on my blog, I wrote two scripts for um, an update of Defenders of the Earth. And if you're a fandom fan, you know that's the teaming of the Phantom, Flash Gordon, and Mandrake the Magician. Yeah. And they wanted an update of that. So I, I, I wrote uh, two issues where what was going to become King's Watch and the licenser wanted to go in a different direction, so they ended up going with Jeff Parker in his direction. But I, I posted the first two scripts of uh, these three characters kind of fighting against a coalition between uh, the forces of Mongo and some uh, neo-Nazis. So wow. it's kind of fun to do that. Yeah, and, but you're also a professor on top of it, on top of the writing. Were you teaching creative writing, or were you teaching history of comics? Like, what was the the subject matter that you're teaching at the university? Um, uh, I, I teach writing and creative writing, and I taught literature and uh, basically all forms of writing. I majored in writing in my undergraduate. So, as a, you know, as a freelancer, you're kind of always looking at the horizon. So, uh, in times when I've you know needed to, to some you know additional income streams, teaching has always been there for me. So uh, this semester, I'm teaching creative nonfiction and also creative writing and workplace writing. So I kind of you know. I'm kind of scratching three different itches there, in addition to a, a, a couple lit classes, which uh, right before the lockdown were, they were uh, stand-up classes, but now they've been forced into being online classes, which is a different dynamic. But, uh, I, you know, I, when I was in college, I worked in a writing center, mm-hmm. and then in grad school, while I was going through uh, my, my writing degree, I taught uh, freshman comp at Iowa State University, so teaching's always been in my blood, and it's nice now because I think I've gotten to the point where um, many of the teaching jobs I've gotten have been on the basis of my publication history. So they realize that, that you know, I'm a published writer, so I bring that to the table when I'm teaching writing. And you can sell your own books uh, as part of uh, mandatory reading. <laughs> I wish. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I mean, occasionally, you know, I, 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 I start out the semester with full disclosure. I tell my students, hey, I'm a writer. I do this. I do this. And it's not until like a week or two in when they Google me, they're like, hey, you were telling the truth. <laughs> and it's always funny to me. It's like, what, well, you think I lied about it? Like, right. Hey, you're, you're kind of a big deal. Right. It's like, yeah, well, I have to lie. Yeah, you're the guy that lied about writing Batman or Robin year one. Yeah, yeah you know, it's funny because we put, like later in the semester, a student will come up with a copy of something I've written, like, you know, Robin year one or something. <laughs> And they'll say, hey, could you sign this for my brother? <laughs> you know, or, what's his name? Um, I just sign it for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but there's got to be that le- level of fun when, like, a student comes to you to ask you for a signature, at least, you know, by midterms. Yeah, it, it's, you know, I, I try to keep the world separate, though. It's, it's funny because, 
you know, I can tell that, you know, suddenly they're interested. I'm not just a boring professor, mm-hmm. you know, because they know that they can come talk to me. And it usually devolves into students coming up at the end of class and saying, hey, what did you think about Endgame? <laughs> and, you know, then we geek out for the next 30 minutes and I'm late for my next class. Um, so I, I think at least with this generation now, like, you know, it's, you know, I'm, I'm twice the age. I could be their father. Right. Um, and what uh, what's interesting is that it does open up where they, they, you know, accept me and know that they can talk to me about the things that they like. And I'm finding more and more with my students that, like, my cultural touchstones are not their cultural touchstones. Mm-hmm. You know, I've labored under the illusion for too many years that everybody's seen Star Wars. And there are a lot of millennials in the generation after that just don't have Star Wars in their blood like I do. Right. So it's... Uh, it, you know, so you got to fall back on the things that, that I don't have a lot of experience in, which is usually, you know, manga and anything anime. Mm-hmm. You know, I can, you know, drop a couple names, but, you know, these are kids that grew up on uh, The Last Airbender, Avatar, right. and, um, you know, uh, other names that I can't even think of at this point. So, right. you know, I've got to culturally, I've got to, you know, do some homework to see what, you know, inspired them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I know, I know what you're talking about, the Star Wars thing, because I had a friend that loved the last trilogy, and I just looked at him and I was like, I can't talk to you anymore. Yeah. The, the last trilogy or the, 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 the George Lucas last trilogy? Oh, no, 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 no. The, the prequels. Oh, you're talking like Force, I'm, oh, I'm, Force Awakens? And- yeah, yeah, I'm talking about those. I said, I said, those three movies made me appreciate George Lucas's prequels. Wow. Yes, I know. It, people get so mad at me for saying that, and you're probably like, I don't want to talk to this guy anymore. Down, you know, I, I couldn't do it, man. Like, I just couldn't do it. I was just like, nope. I tried. I can't well, do I, it. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, you know, disillusion you about me, but I, I actually, <laughs> I enjoyed The Force Awakens. I'm one of few people who like uh, The um, the Last Jedi, uh-huh. and uh, I, I liked the final film. Um, you know, I mean, Star Wars meant so much to me as a kid, but, right. you know, they, they, they talk about a lot of fan service, like, all oh, that's fan service. And mm-hmm. To be honest, I mean, any sequel is fan service, right. because it is playing to the fans. So, you know, when we, when we first saw the Force Awakens tra- trailer, my kids and I were at my computer, and they were looking at me like, God, are you crying? <laughs> like, shut up, you're crying. <laughs> you know, when Chewbacca and Han Solo first appeared for the, for the first time in, you know, 40 years. So I'm I'm a big nerd, and you know I think the things that this you know that I hope that the COVID nineteen plague hasn't destroyed is the, the cinema because I, I spent so much of my youth at the movies, seeing things on the big screen, and you know when I go to see a popcorn movie like you know The Rise of Skywalker or Avengers Endgame or you know just you know pick anything except the DC film. <laughs> well, you know, hey 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 hey, Shazam was great. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna agree to disagree with you there. It could have been good. Yeah, I still I can't call him Shazam funny. though. I have to call him Captain Marvel. It's like not in my yeah, DNA to call him Shazam. I, 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 I liked it. I think I probably one of the ones I enjoyed more than any of the other ones. Mm-hmm. I went to see Justice League on my birthday and came out just so disappointed. I'm like, that was not the Justice League. You know, it's, I don't know, for reason. Marvel knows how to make character-driven films that, you know, that have superpowers. And when I watch, you know, the ending of Wonder Woman or Justice League or uh, Batman v Superman, it just feels like a video game to me. It just, I don't know, I feel detached. And, you know, I was a Johnny DC 
long before I ever became a Marvel zombie. And I guess <laughs> if I had to choose, flew in a rocket, leaving you know a failing planet Earth, <laughs> I'd pull my DC books along with the, you know before Marvel. Right. See, I uh, like you. I'm more of a DC than Marvel guy. You know, which is probably going to get Disney to cut me off from reviewing their movies at this point. But <laughs> <laughs> I didn't like a single Avengers movie. Like, I loved all the Captain America movies. I liked the tie-ins. But when it came to Avengers, like all four movies, I didn't like a single one of them. Yeah. 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 And people get so mad at me for that. Like, I got a death threat for not liking the first Avengers movie. Yeah, I said, eh, B minus. And someone literally sent me a death threat. Jeez. Yeah. Because I said... Yeah, that's when fandom goes too far. Yeah. Because I said I couldn't... You know, I can't suspend disbelief that Captain America was a wuss for two and a half hours. You know, like, he's been... I get... Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Well, well, no, like... I, to, I see where you're coming from. You know, like, okay, I suspend disbelief he's been frozen for 80 years, all this stuff. But, like, if he's been frozen for 80 years and he's thawed out, so to him it's basically a month. You don't forget how to fight and be a captain in the U.S. military in a month. Yeah, there's more superpowers. Yeah, there, there's all this other stuff going on around you. But you're still friggin' Captain America, you know? Sure, yeah. So that was well, my I, issue you know, I, I I hesitate like ever trying to argue somebody out of their opinion. Um, I, you know, no, I, I think the opinion is valid and I accept it. I just don't agree with it. Um, well, that's fine. I, We're not I, arguing. I'm constantly amazed. Yeah. Yeah. I'm constantly amazed at how Chris Evans was able to transcend, you know, like two of the worst comics movies in those FF films to become like, just, you know, to become cap. I mean, I follow him into battle and, you know, it, if you look at like the arc of like the cap films and the Avenger films to the very end, I mean, there's, there's just so many great moments, you know, so many like, you know, pee your pants kind of, you know, woo moments that I just appreciate. Uh, the, uh, I can respect I, I that. I have to say that in, in my opinion, I mean, my, my, my most favorite comic book film is The Incredibles. Okay. I think that uh, Brad Bird, you know, gets comics in a way that I got comics as a kid. Right. But the fight scene in uh, Captain America Civil War, the airport fight scene between the, the divided factions of the Avengers is probably the best superhero action put to film. It's, oh. you know, choreographed well. You can understand the action. It's got great dialogue along the way. There's gravitas. You know, uh, to me, that's that's kind of a benchmark. I can watch that over and over. I am in full agreement with you on that, especially with, with Civil War. I just had one issue with the fandom when it came to Civil War and Batman v Superman. The reveal of Spider-Man with, with well, the reveal of Spider-Man with Captain America's shield, oh. and then the reveal yeah. of Wonder Woman popping up behind her own shield, and people are like, yeah. "Ugh, the movie's ruined." You know, the Wonder Woman was the big spoiler. And then Marvel did the same exact thing with Spider-Man popping his head up going, hi, everyone. And then everyone lost their mind and thought it was the greatest thing on the face of the planet. I was like, it's the same scene. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can offer I mean, the perspective of the, uh, the creative side. You know, for a long Please. time, like trying to break into comics, like Marvel and DC would say, hey, don't solicit any unsolicited, you know, ideas. Mm. Because here's the thing. If we ever do that, you can't come back to us and say, Hey, you stole my idea for the the last Wolverine story, mm -hmm. and so you know that that was always kind of the operating principle. But I'm at the of the mind that there are so many people out there trying to think up things, 
that eventually we're going to see the same idea, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's going to be more than just a remarkable coincidence. Right. So, you know, yeah, maybe they saw it and copied it or maybe they didn't. Somebody did it better. You know, somebody did it first. But, you know, there are too many minds out there right now trying to think about the same thing. So. Oh no, I'm not. I'm not complaining about that. I'm complaining about the reaction. How some people were like, you know, when it was, you know, BVS, that's the worst reveal ever. And then when it was Civil War, it was the greatest reveal ever. And it's the same exact reveal. Like the reaction yeah, yeah, is what I bugged. Agree. I mean, I, I think you know, with Marvel DC fandom, you're going to find the red state blue state kind of thing going on there too. That you know, and it's funny for me because when people say like, you know, what, do you, what are your favorite films, and I list Marvel films, they're like, what are you talking about? You're a turncoat. I'm like, well, no, because I've worked for both companies, but right. you know, for me, just Marvel has done it better. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I, I, when I go to see a Justice League film, there's certain things that I want to check off. I want to see the satellite. I right. want to see them teleport, you know, someplace. Mm-hmm. I, I want to, you know, see them all work together, Superman with everyone else. And it just, I don't know, it just, it just didn't click for me. I don't, I'm not keen on, you know, I think Wonder Woman probably is the best version so far. Uh, I think Christian Bale's Batman is the best Batman so far, but they, they're not thinking long term enough in order to bring all those elements together to make a cohesive, you know, universe. So Green Lantern didn't make your top DC movie list. Um... <laughs> I'm no, just no, you know, I don't know. There's, I, you know, it's kind of weird. I mean, if I saw it in a vacuum, I didn't have all the internet stuff going around. Um, the naked costumes, I probably wouldn't have had a big problem with. I don't mind uh, Ryan Reynolds so much. I mean, I think you know, it's got things going for it. But in the end, it just it ends. It starts big and ends small. Right. With, uh, and then it tries to be big again with Parallax, which is. You know, giant space Cthulhu octopus. I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> well, my my issue with it was is like Ryan Reynolds should have been Kyle Rayner, not Hal Jordan. Yeah, yeah. You know, same yeah, with yeah. Uh, same with Ezra Miller. I thought he was more Bart Allen than Barry Allen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I, I I personally take issue with Barry Allen's revised word. To me, you know, Barry Allen was always the optimistic hero. Mm-hmm. You know, he was the guy who always, you know, ran in with a smile. Mm-hmm. The fact that his origin has been retconned where his mother was, you know, allegedly murdered by his father. And so that mystery is what drives him. It's like, to me, it's the Disney, or it's the DC equivalent of the Disney uh, motherless princess, you know, <laughs> where, where we've got to take, where we've got to take every character and give them some kind of horror in their origin in order to, you know, to make them superheroes. And, you know, Barry was a, a guy who was late. Right. I, I tried writing that. I did a, a two, I did all the two page villain origins for, uh, for countdown, mm-hmm. um, a long time ago. And, uh, I was able to do like two, uh, for various DC licenses, once for converse sneakers. And so I did it in two pages with Howard Porter, Barry Allen's origin. And, and essentially Barry was late for everything until right. he got lightning, and then he's still late for like the things that matter in his personal life. But he's always on time as the Flash, mm-hmm. and that inherent optimism, I think, is what's lacking a lot of today's, you know. Yeah, and that was the fun part about the and, Flash. And, yeah, yeah, it's just that you know, and you know, towards the end of like the Carrie Bates run around like issue three hundred when <laughs> Iris was murdered by Professor Zoom <laughs> and he was on trial, like you know, they they really put him through the ringer, but. This guy like stuck to it and was still, you know, still optimistic that he could, you know, 
transcend all that. So, well, that's what made I mean, the Flash it's, fun. It's weird in, yeah, it's, it's weird in comics to me that heroes have to have you know a, a you know some kind of point of horror in their origin, and then this notion now that villains have to be regular people who have suffered some kind of trauma and then became villains as part of the trauma. It's like, mm-hmm. nope, not it doesn't work for me. Right. Villains are bad guys, people who choose to be bad. Right. I think the only one it ever really worked with was Magneto. But, you know, with the whole yeah, Holocaust survivor yeah. thing. But other than that, like, you know, I don't want to feel bad for the Joker. I don't want to feel bad for Lobo. I don't want to feel bad for Lex Luthor. I don't want to feel bad for for my villains like when rob zombie remade the halloween movies i did not want to feel bad for michael myers yeah well it's like you know when george lucas did it with anakin skywalker and darth vader it's like wait a minute you get to kill all the jedi babies and still go to force heaven that doesn't make sense to me you know right like it's like it's okay that he like in the end redeemed himself and saved his son but okay he gets to be a force ghost mm-hmm. like i don't know what you know this weird notion of heaven in the jedi universe right at least go to like force pur- purgatory yeah yeah you know? and i just I, I like my bad guys like when i wrote merciless for dynamite mm-hmm. i wanted ming to just be a bastard from the start i'm sorry about mm-hmm. that, but <laughs> it's okay <laughs> your, kid, your I, kids I, aren't I, in the room with you I you're wanted, okay yeah i wanted him to be just just terrible from the start and it reminds me, there's a, an old uh, movie called No Escape with Ray Liotta. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a grown-up version of Lord of the Flies, where in the future, these prisoners are sent to like a tropical island. And they, they kind of form like a sort of a Mad Max, Lord of the Flies, you know, just weird tribal society. And at one point, uh, the actor Stuart Wilson is a guy who comes in, and he's got braids and like like little like bone or metal shards through his nose, the bridge of his nose, to make really, you know, Mad Max. And he comes into this clearing where everybody's, you know, kind of kvetching about, you know, who's bad, who's, who gets to be leader. And he rolls a severed head across the fire. And he said, listen, everyone, I really, really want to be in charge. And that's it. That's perfect. That's, that's my ideal of the villain. The villain right. is just the guy who just, you know, I, I, I'm in charge. I want to be the bad guy. Right. I want everything. Not, you know, oh, I was abused as a child and now I'm going to take it out on the world. No. If you're abused as a child, that's a whole other level of terror in your right. life. You don't have to become, you know, Thanos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> even Thanos is, you know, even that whole thing, like, you know, I'm trying to save the universe, but, like, why don't you just make more stuff? You know, right. why do you have the universe in half? <laughs> Population control, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> well, not even that, but it's like, you know, listen, if I if I can snap my fingers and create and destroy, I'm just going to make twice as much stuff so everybody right. doesn't go hungry. Right. So. Oh, man. Well, yeah, it, it's always interesting with, with what we get to see with comics and everything else that's going on. And now with the coronavirus, I know Diamond, we got an email from Diamond saying they're no longer shipping out comics, which gives us another access to... Digital comics, you know, comicsology, direct marketing through DC and Marvel themselves. What's that going to do to the retailer in the long run? Um, yeah, I think that's the problem. <clears throat> I, I'm one of my best friends runs a comic shop in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and I'm really thinking about him. He does mail order, and I'm hoping that that his uh, his customers are taking advantage of that. Uh, the problem is we're not getting new comics, mm-hmm. but there is such a wealth of, you know, there these stores have a ton of back issues. They keep trade paperbacks in stock, you know. If you can get a trade from a comic shop 
that does mail order rather than Amazon, you're helping to keep the local comic shop alive. I mean, we, we wouldn't have the direct market if not for the comic shops in the 70s and 80s that chance and then were able to publish things and get them out on the shelves that, that were, you know, not code approved, you know, titles that really changed things like, you know, Camelot 3000 and Ronin and, you know, the epic comic books and, you know, all that stuff, first comics, like things that, you know, kind of, you know, challenged the rating system, but, you know, gave creators more freedom to do so. Right. Um, I'm hoping that we can weather it. But I, I hope that people remember that, you know, when you're thinking about getting something, the path of least resistance is Amazon. You, mm-hmm. you know, I just bought a toilet seat from Amazon mm-hmm. and razors. Um, but if I can get it through a comic shop and help keep retailers alive, then I think that the, the comics market, you know, will will ultimately survive. Right? The digital has never really, I mean, I know people still buy digital, mm-hmm. but I think we still have this need for the rolled up comic book in our back pocket. I know that goes against you know, <laughs> a, any, you know, mint, on, mint in bag sort of thing, but, you know, there's a reason why, like, when um, uh, the Wizard Fan Award was designed by uh, Clever Moore, that it was a kid with his baseball cap turned backwards and he had a rolled up comic book in his back pocket. You know, like that, that's the thing, like, you know, before they became collectible, you shared comics, you traded comics, kids, uh, like I, like Chuck Dixon, people that I know used to have parents that would buy recycled books by the pound and they were like coverless comics that were, would have been destroyed or pulped, uh, because they were past their distribution date, you know, and that's how they read and enjoyed comics. So, if you can share something, which is like I've been trying to do with some things that are either in the public domain or, you know, part of my own stock mm-hmm. online or point them to a back issue or a, something older, you know, let's keep readership alive. But whatever you can do to help keep the, the small comic retailer alive, you know, in, in pause, I think is important. Well, it, you know, it's where I first started getting comics in, in the mid 80s as a little kid you know, six, seven years old. And then, you know, there was also the liquor store and people you would get comics from in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And, you know, people, there was arguments online about how dare they want to put comics in liquor stores again, or, you know, like drugstores, pharmacies, whatever, you know, like who would buy a comic from CVS? Well, if it's there and you're thumbing through the magazine section, why not? It's still an option. Well, you know, it's funny because Archie has been able to do this and stay alive and stay relevant by being in the uh, in the checkout at the grocery store, uh, you know where people are doing the impulse buying, buying gum, buying the National Enquirer, and look, hey, here's some Archie Digest, right. you know, reprints and things like that. I mean, maybe that's where you know the the, company, the companies need to go with that kind of content that is you know all ages. You know, Walmart was doing it before the you know the, the shutdown, mm-hmm. but maybe that's where we need to go. Um, I'm not sure. I don't know if I necessarily agree with Todd McFarlane and a lot of people saying that we need big crossovers or big team-ups, you know, coming out of this. I, I think that that's just, you know, mercenary in a way to, you know, kind of get people's bucks. But, uh, you know, we, we just need to get the distribution. I think distribution is everything. Like, you know, you can't get groceries. You can't get your hair cut. You, you know, you can't buy stamps. You know, when we were able to go out safely, and the distribution is back on, then, you know, that's, that's where it'll, it'll return. So, yeah. What I, what I've noticed with all of this is that this is becoming a big advantage for white collar jobs, you know, and that people are going to be able to telecommute more. 
But I also see this as going to be, again, problems like we mentioned for mom and pop shops. And hopefully people will go back to the comic world. But I've also noticed that there are a lot of com- uh, comic book creators that are willing to argue with, with fans on Twitter, which confuses the hell out of me. Like, I mean, if somebody said something about your kid, go ahead and defend him. But if someone said something about whatever character or work or something, at some point, you know, why engage? Yeah, it's funny. I don't know. You know, before we had the Internet, I, people wrote letters. You know, you mm-hmm. wrote letters to the editor that got published in comics. Mm-hmm. You know, there are creators today that were famous letter hacks. Um, you know, McFarlane wrote in letters. Bo Smith, uh, creator of Winona Earp. Um, you know, the, the list goes on and on. I don't I don't feel the need. I, I My Facebook and social media is kind of closed to, like, all but my friends. Mm-hmm. So it's not open to fans. But, you know, I'll post things that are on Twitter. And, and, and of course, in the last couple of years, I've posted things politically that I, I'm sure that have alienated people. But that's my belief. And mm-hmm. I'm a person in addition to being a creator. Mm-hmm. But I don't feel the need people to task. Mm-hmm. for it, you know, uh, unless they misinterpret something and they imply some sort of malice right. uh, in it. Uh, there's a there's a recent story on CBR that talks about, um, you, you know, when uh, the Terminator first appeared in New Teen Titans mm-hmm. and the Judas contract, it's pretty much blatant. The Terminator and Terra, who was 15, were, you know, having an affair. Mm-hmm. And when I wrote a two-page Terminator origin for uh, Countdown a few years ago, there's a panel that, you know, it's one-third of the page that shows the Terminator and, and Terra. You know, Terminator's in bed and Terra's getting dressed, and, mm-hmm. and that, that is just continuing that notion. Right. But now that the Terminator is more mainstream, then, you know, things are like, oh, well, we've got to retcon this aspect. I'm like, well, no. You know, in 1984, when that story came out, you know, the Terminator was a villain. He was trying to kill the Teen Titans. So, mm-hmm. If anything, I, you know, I might call out a fan and say, look, it wasn't that I was trying to cement this notion of continuity. I was just being, you know, uh, I, I adhering to continuity that was pre-established and to the will of the writer, Marv Wolfman and, and George Perez, because this is what they established. Right. And I believe that, you know, we, we have to give certain we have to give certain credit to the creators that that's, that was their intent. And so, also, what's more villainous so, than, than pedophilia? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not condoning yeah. it by any means. No, no, but, no. I'm saying what's um, more villainous than that? That that's Yeah, what's uh, more yeah. villainous? Yeah. 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 So, so you know, like there wasn't an attempt by DC or my editor at that right. time to take that notion out. Mm-hmm. There is now. Right. You know, but you know, I, I can't speak to that. But I'm not going to get into an argument. You know, my dad can beat up your dad or, or that sort of thing with right. fans. Uh, I, I will make an attempt to correct if something that I've written was misinterpreted. Right. You know. And, but I'm not going to go out, like if a fan doesn't like a story, you don't like it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't like spinach, I'm not going to convince you to like spinach. But that's the thing about the internet. And I try to avoid it, especially when I'm writing something that mm-hmm. is coming out in real time, because I, I, I fear that, I, I, I kind of liken it to the midichlorians in Star Wars, mm-hmm. in the prequels. You know, George Lucas made those movies over a long enough duration that, when the fan backlash about midi-chlorians came out, mm-hmm. they did not appear in the second and third film to any degree right. uh, because he realized that, that he was he was paying lip service to the fans. Mm-hmm. When I believe that, you know, the story is a story. You know, a lot of people are going to like it. A lot of people are going to hate it. The worst thing you can have is just meh. 
Mm-hmm. You know, if there's no reaction, you know, if they love it or hate it, then at least you move them emotionally. Right. But I'm not going to change course because a fan disagrees with me. That makes perfect sense. I'm, I was just interested in your opinion on that because, you know, I've seen so many people getting to cursing at each other matches and swearing at, you know, various swearing sessions and whatever else and name calling. And I was just like, you know, at the end of the day, it's entertainment. There's no reason for it. Well, I see. Here's the thing. You know, nobody knows social isolation like a comic book creator. You know, I mean, when, when editors from Marvel and DC have gone online famously and saying, you know, hey, I'm working from home now. Now I get it. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, well, we've got it for a long time. You know, it's uh, you, you live in a bubble. You are writing to fans who, you know, you don't see the results for a couple of months because of the nature of the production cycle. Um, sometimes, you know, I've literally the age of technology gotten jobs and completed it without ever speaking to a person live mm-hmm. you know it comes through email uh if the person has a name that is gender neutral i don't know if they're male or female if i don't know them outside of you know the job itself and maybe mm-hmm. i have to google them just so i don't drop a personal pronoun that's wrong right. and make an assumption but from start to finish you have no interaction outside of the digital realm mm-hmm. where you're not speaking to anybody so i know that some fans excuse me some creators feel the need to kind of engage and sometimes they do it in a very negative way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm not looking for a fist fight. I mean, it's comic right. kind of like, I right. think and- Alan Moore said famously a few years ago, I mean, I, it's probably longer than that, but uh, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, you know, when you find you've been standing up to your knees and, you know, excrement, do you get mad and jump up and down or do you walk away? <laughs> you know, I walk away. Yeah. You know, and and I- so, you know, it's the thing, it's like, you're not going to convince somebody to your side by getting in their face and screaming at them. So. Right. Yeah, and we're not mentioning any names. We're not calling anybody out. So, you know, this is just general from what I've seen. So I don't want anyone to, like, internalize this at some point and go, he was referring to so-and-so. And I was like, no, 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 no. I've seen it happen on multiple occasions from multiple people. So, you know, it's not yeah, name-calling yeah, or well, finger-pointing. If, if, if I can just call out what I think you're, you're hinting at here, I mean, there's also been a lot of politicization mm-hmm. in, in comics in the last, you know, since uh, a certain somebody was elected president and people have chosen sides and felt the need to, to either come out in support or, in, you know, and, I, you know, your, your politics are your politics. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the best comics are apolitical. And certainly, you know, when you find out that the creators that you like or the musicians that you like don't agree with you, either politically or socially, mm-hmm. it really changes your opinion of the work when you appreciate the work on the work alone. So mm-hmm. sometimes you got to divorce yourself from it. Yeah, because I, I really don't care. Like, I like talking to you. you. You know, you've been nice to me in every single one of our exchanges. I don't care if we agree politically. I don't care if we agree religiously. I don't care of any of that sort of thing. So long as we can have a decent and friendly conversation. Well, yeah, because there's there's nothing about Superman versus the Hulk mm-hmm. that involves whether you're Republican or Democrat. Right. You know? There's there's nothing about whether or not you know you think you know the the um, you know what Thanos did is you know that liberal or conservative. <laughs> you know? he, he did it because he's a super villain for crying right. out loud. Uh, you know, it, it's that's the thing. It's like you, you, you like comics were an escape. You know, at their very inception, they got us through World War II. They got us through you know all these turbulent decades, and they should still be that. I mean, I think they can reflect the mores of the time and reflect our diversity, but it shouldn't be. I, I, I don't think any soapbox 
I don't think any comic book should be a soapbox for the, the creator's belief system because then you're shoving it down a reader's throat. You're not you're not opening them up to something new. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we we just want people to be entertained at some point. You know, I want to have fun with it, and I understand. Every, you know, these are tumultuous times, political, you know, whatever. And now with COVID-19, hopefully that all calms down and we see each other as people, not red team versus blue team. Because if you're going to go that, get into sports and then pick a favorite team to cheer for. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, well, like you're outside six, Philly, six, so six I'd, I would, <laughs> what's that? <laughs> for I now, sit, anyway. Sit six feet apart. Yeah. Right. Well, you're outside of Philly, so everyone just assumes you're an Eagles fan if you if you like football. Well, yeah, well, I'm north of Philly, but oh, okay. I grew up in uh, in central Pennsylvania. And it's weird because there's a, a weird invisible line of demarcation mm-hmm. where if you live on one side of it, you're a Steelers fan. And if you're on the other, you're an Eagles fan. Uh, or, or that you're Eagles and then, you know, the New York team. So, right. uh, you know, people just assume. But I, I don't know. I, I think with the, because we have cable TV, <laughs> you know, you've got people who live in Pennsylvania who are like diehard Broncos fans. And it mm-hmm. makes no sense other than the fact that they get to see the Broncos at their leisure. Right. So, and it's kind of like comics too. Like, you know, you, you get to choose what you like. What was and the comic? You really shouldn't have to defend it. Right. Well, what was the comic that pulled you into it? Oh, geez. I have comic book memories that, that go back really, really young. I remember like the, uh, the death of Aqua Baby, mm-hmm. you know, and, and like weird stuff. But I was in the hospital in 1977. I had pneumonia. And I missed seeing out on Star Wars. Mm-hmm. So um, because I was, you know, bored to tears and I burned through, like, every Highlights magazine the hospital, you know, pediatric ward had, mm-hmm. Mark bought me some comics in the, uh, the gift shop. And it was Secret Society of Supervillains number 11 with Captain Comet from D.C. It was an issue of Batman Family uh, where Batman is, uh, gets his mind switched with a, a, an albino gorilla and an issue of Richie Rich. And for me, that was sort of the, uh, that was the gateway drug, all three of them. Um, after I got out of the hospital, I just, you know, any spare money I had, uh, if I could find, a, you know, glass bottles of, you know, Coca-Cola and redeem them at the corner store for pocket change. You know, comics at the time were like 35, 40 cents. So, you know, if you had a buck, you got at least two comics. And that really was, was it for me. And I just, for some reason, I, I just like leaped right into DC Comics and, and just, you know, read everything that I could. And around that time, it was probably the Brave and the Bold, mm-hmm. uh, because it was Batman and a different guest star every month. And uh, DC was publishing their Digest reprints at the time, and those were only ninety-five cents. So, if you got those at like a you know sort of a crash course in Golden Age and Silver Age stories, and DC was also doing their dollar comics like World's Finest, Detective Comics, Batman Family, Superman Family. And those were like all day suckers for me. Mm-hmm. You know, you got, you know, 100 pages for a buck. So I just, uh, voraciously, uh, until I became a paper boy, and then, you know, every cent of my paper route went towards them. See, it, it, it was an addiction that was started because of an illness, and now this illness, uh, unfortunately <laughs> kept you home, but it kept you working in college. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it was only that, you know, I just didn't have anything to do. So, you know, absent of, of you know, I, I just sort of poured over the three comics that I, that I was given in the hospital mm-hmm. so much that I just wanted to know more. And, you know, even at the time, there was a lot of content in the back. Like, DC Comics had, like, the Daily Planet, mm-hmm. uh, which showed you what was coming, like, the next month. 
They had uh, Bob Rosakis, who was the answer man, and he would answer questions about it. They had letters pages. They had, like, uh, the old Hembeck strips where Fred Hembeck would do cartoon versions of the, the heroes and some sort of three-panel joke. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was really a lot there, and I just kind of realized at the time that, wow, this is a world that, you know, I, I had seen the Super Friends on ABC Morning Television, and I liked that stuff. But it was like, wow, there, there's something here. And I tend to go kind of OCD, voracious into something, which is, I think, it's easy for me to write the encyclopedias in that, you know, if you, if you give me a stack of books, you know, in a weekend, by the end of it, I'll know everything there is to know. See, I wish, you know, yeah, of yeah. course. Well, you are the encyclopedia. Well, I, I don't know if I can still hold that title. I, I'm not. I'm not up on New Fifty Two and uh, the Rebirth stuff. I, I was reading. Uh, I was looking at some of the, the new Titans uh, that kind of redacted the Terminators, and you know, Dick Grayson has a long pants costume, and you know, none of the new Teen Titans are in it because Cyborg's in a Justice League, and I'm like, oh god, right. it makes my head hurt trying to think about how this is all, you know, how it all goes together. I have to say, thankfully, you know, the Batman titles have been mostly spared a lot of the rebirth history stuff. So, you know, thankfully, like things that I've worked on, like Robin Year One and Back Row Year One and, and hopefully Nightwing Year One, which is coming out this year as a hardcover, um, are, are still, you know, part of canon because they, they keep reprinting them at least. Well, uh, I'm happy to hear that. And hopefully, you know, the residual check keeps coming with it. Yeah, royalties aren't bad, you know. <laughs> Sometimes it's pizza, and right. sometimes it's, you know, hey, here, we can put this in the college fund, you know? <laughs> I dig it. Uh, you know, digital, the digital stuff has really helped because I think that it, it gets it out there. Because, you know, if you go to a comic book store, you can see that the uh, the back issue bins are, that used to dominate the stores mm-hmm. are, are, you know, are sort of, you know, pushed off to the side because you have to have room for all of the new comics, mm-hmm. and there are a million of them. And then there's things like Funko Pops and action figures and the posters and the T-shirts, you know, all of the memorabilia that goes with it, which is good because like, one hand, you know, washes the other in that respect. But it's, uh, I, I don't know. I think that it's, it's nice to see a lot of this old material that's, that's seminal, that helps to define the characters. And some of it's really dated and hokey, but, man, it's still fun. Mm-hmm. But you know what? That, that's what keeps it alive. Like, with the with the reprints, like, you know, you went back and – talked about the Daily Planet being in the back of the comic or those advertisements of, you know, home gyms that if you saved enough uh, money, you can send in, you know, clip it from the from the comic and send it in and get a workout routine or sea monkeys or whatever else was in there. I kind of wish those things were in the reprints in the in the trade paperbacks. Yeah. Yeah, it would be a licensing nightmare, but yeah. you know, that stuff really just shows you the function of the time. You know, like, oh my God, some of the comics used to have the double page ad spreads in the center for the, you know, the early record and tape clubs. That's <laughs> stuff that I got when I was a kid, like, you know, the Columbia, you know, record and tape club. And you look at just what was the greatest hits of the time. Right. And I think, you know, as, as I was talking earlier about my students not being into Star Wars, when you see this stuff, it kind of, you know, just shows you the cultural touchstones <laughs> of the time so that you can kind of put it into a historical perspective. Because absent of that, it's it's hard to understand, you know, these stories, right? And what's uh, you know, what the creators have in mind. Yeah, like the other day, my friend and I were opining about missing going to the record stores, and he brought up Columbia House again, and you know, ten CDs for a dime or whatever it was, and I was like, the stamp costs more than the stupid dime to uh, to get the CDs. <laughs> 
exactly. You know? <laughs> or it's like Stranger Things season three, you know, which is set, you know, in the mall. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, you know, I mean, the mall, like going to the, going to the record store, like buying cassettes and getting an orange juice and, and all of that stuff. Yeah. And it's it's really long. My kids are thirteen and fourteen, and they have no conception. I had to explain Paperboy to my students. Hey, what's a paper carrier? What's a newspaper? Yeah, had to wake up at what four o'clock in the morning to roll them all up to get them out by the six o'clock edition or whatever it was. No, no, I was actually I did the afternoon. Uh, okay. My my I, as soon as I got off the school bus, I had to stop at the corner store and you deliver the papers, or else the you know the old lady down the street would start calling my parents wondering what the paper was. <laughs> <laughs> it was. Yeah. I have to say, it was a pretty good gig because it was a right. you know it was a weekly salary. It kept yeah. me in comics, mm-hmm. and at Christmas time, the holidays, uh, everybody would put a card, uh, like leave a card with like five dollars. Wow! And so at the holidays, you raked in a ton. Hey, five so, bucks uh, is big I, money back then, man. Yeah, yeah. But you know what's interesting as a comics fan, you know, I had to go to like the next town over in order to find comics, but. Uh, out of like Comic Scene Magazine, which was uh, published by Starlog back in the early 80s, they advertised a subscription service. And this was, you know, sort of a precursor for Diamond. Uh, like they had like Capital City and they had uh, Alternate Worlds. And I found, uh, I went through all the worlds as a subscription service where, you know, you could tell them every month what, what comics you want. And then, you know, once a month you'd get a box from UPS that had all your comics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I did fine with that. It was like 20, 25 bucks a month until DC's Crisis on Infinite Earths. And at that point, subscription service would send you a checklist and you could check off like all the books you wanted each month. I made the mistake of checking off Crisis crossover issues. Oh. And my bill went from it went from twenty seven dollars one month to like ninety six. Oh my because god! Because it was literally every book that DC Comics published that month, and you know I, I got three boxes at one time, and I had to get a loan from my parents just to you know stay in business. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> that's craziness, one. But hey, it taught you to do your taxes early too. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, when fandom, you know. Overrides everything else. Well, I, I look at that's like, the thing. I think it, it, I think it lends itself to now because you know a lot of people are like, well, you know, they're looking at their next paycheck. You know, are they going to buy comics? Right. So, well, I look at thankfully like, I live with my parents. <laughs> I look at Gen X. I'm the tail end of Gen X, and you know, thinking about how when we were younger, we'd want our parents to take us to, you know, like I was 11 years old when Batman, the Michael Keaton Batman movie, came out. And, you know, just my dad looking at me like, you really want to see this stuff? And now I see people, you know, all of Gen X from the beginning to the end taking their kids to these comic cons. And I just see this flip going where kids are going to be there in San Diego going, I don't want to go to Comic Con. I want to go to the Padres Dodgers game. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I see when I was a kid, I had, you know, they had underwears, which were, you know, like the, yep. the underwear that looked like your favorite superhero. They brought them and back for adults. Like, <laughs> that's right. right. But when I was a kid, I remember consciously thinking, okay, I can't wear underwears on the day I have gym class because I'll get beaten up. <laughs> and, you know, flash forward 40 years and I'm at my kid's uh, martial arts dojo and they're taking judo mm-hmm. and I'm looking around the room and everybody, you know, from the senseis, to the kids, to the guys who are practicing MMA, have some kind of workout gear that is themed with a superhero. They've got like yep. a Spider-Man, you know, top, or mm-hmm. you know, they've got Iron Man, you know, board shorts, or something like right. that. Like everybody's got some kind of superhero gear, and it just shows you how far we've come and how 
embedded it is in our society. Oh, which is absolutely. It's good for the industry. Yeah. Well, you know, you I'm, know, a ju- I'm, I'm confident. To see- Go ahead. I'm- oh, I was going to tell you, I'm a judoka myself. So, you know, I'm thrilled for your kids that they practice judo. Yeah, I did in yeah. college. That's what uh, I got them into. You know, <laughs> yeah, I always loved judo because, it's, you know, as a self-defense, you know, more uh, reactive than, uh, you know, like, you know, like kung fu or karate, right. you know, <laughs> chopping blocks. But the, uh, and also, you know, I, I was taught in, in judo in college that, you know, you'll always look someone in the eye if you're confident that you can take care of yourself. And mm-hmm. I, I just have always appreciated that. I, I consciously, as a, as a judo player, uh, try to throw in, you know, like, judo throws whenever I have a martial arts team who comes. So I go back and I reference my old, my judo manuals to make sure that and send off the reference to the artist. There you go. And then you call up Jimmy Pedro, who I think is on the East Coast, and like, hey, is this accurate? Since, uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, but that, that's awesome. See, it's, it's funny because what I used to refer to it as when I was in high school, I was on the wrestling team and I used to refer to it as being in the toy chest, you know, cause I was the one that was into all the nerdy stuff and still got made fun of for being into the nerdy stuff. And now some of them are calling me up and going, Hey, what comic or what movie or what cartoon should my kid watch? So like you said, it's yeah, interesting I mean- to see the tide turn. Yeah, it's, you know, it's so much a part of our society. I mean, I, I think superheroes will weather, you know, the COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, comics, I, 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 I'm sure that we will. Um, but, you know, it's it's great that we have all this content mm-hmm. that's out there. And the people have finally embraced it. I mean, it's, you know, it's, for the most part, it's, uh, I mean, it's an American art form that, uh, you know, is as American as apple pie and baseball and all that. And it has good, strong roots and, you know, you know there have been some, you know, bad apples in the bunch over the years and different things. But, right. you know, comics, I think, it's, you know, it, it deserves as much respect as any other literary form. I, well, I'm in full agreement with that. But I wanted to, to just shift gears real quick to the comic conventions because we had mentioned them earlier. And you had said you hope that we get conventions back at some point or if we ever will. Um why do you, why do you think so many of the publishers, I mean, you know, let's say San Diego Comic Con, cause that's supposed to come up this July. Um, keep the publishers so far away from the creators and artist alley. Like, shouldn't there be some sort of syner- synergy between the two? Since they were the ones that wrote and drew the books that continue your yeah. company's growth? Yeah. I, I, there's always been kind of a disconnect. I remember being at, I'm not sure if it was either a San Diego Comic-Con or Megacon in Florida, um, and this was probably in the early 2000s, where I, I was just walking along Artist Alley and seeing, like, here's Ramona Freyden, and she worked on Aquaman and Superfan. And here's Kurt Schaffenberger, who did, you know, some really gorgeous uh, Superman stories and Superman family and, and Captain Marvel stories. And these are, you know, aging creators who are sitting by themselves who have nobody at their boots, mm-hmm. you know? But, however, around the corner, you know, the line is, you know, three blocks long for Kevin Smith because Clerks is, the, you know, the thing of the moment. Right. And so I've always felt like there's this, you know, this lack of appreciation for, like, the, the legacy and for the, the history of the media. And so I don't understand, like, why, you know, DC wouldn't bring over and say, hey, you know, meet the classics and have mm-hmm. these these classic creators lined up over there as well. Right. Uh, just to show that, you know, just to show the Asians, certainly. Mm-hmm. 
Um, <laughs> I joked, I, I met Carmine Infantino at a MegaCon in Florida, and I, I met him, like, hey, I work at DC. And he's like, where are my flash cops? Like, no, 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 I don't work at DC. I work for DC. I'm, I'm you know, I was like just trying to engage in conversation, right. and he just railed on me, like, you know, you guys need to get it together, give me my phone. I'm like, no, no. And it was just a funny little story, but it's like, you know, here's a guy who was an editor at DC, but he's not part of the East, the DC booth. Right. You know, like he's not part of the DC panels. And so I think that the appreciation of history needs to be there. And if they can find some way to kind of connect the two, right. where it's not just, you know, oh, here's, you know, here's the writer of the moment, you know, and you have to wait in line, you know, neck deep and mm-hmm. see them. And I think, you know, moving forward from COVID-19, you know, we're going to have to have the kind of distancing that the convention doesn't allow. I mean, think about the last time you were at a show trying to look through back issue bins and like literally you're jostling for elbow space right. because somebody's looking over, you know, looking at what you're looking at to make sure you don't get the cool back issue. Right. You know, you know or because so, that, you're looking for the same book that, Oh, by the way, that creator is doing a signing at three o'clock. So I forgot my copy at yeah, home absolutely. or whatever. Yeah. I got yeah. you, man. You know, cause it's interesting times with all this and especially social distancing, San Diego. I mean, San Diego, we bring them up because they're the granddaddy of them all. You know, they're the WrestleMania, the Super Bowl, the World Series, you know, the NBA Finals, Final Four, et cetera, of the comic industry. New York is pretty huge, and, you know, New York's going through hell right now, especially with Manhattan being an island and having to suffer through Absolutely. all of this. Um, and the Javits Center, which is, the you know, the home of New York Comic Con, is, is now, a, you know, a hospital, yeah. you know. Um, there was some comics creator, and I can't I can't remember who, and I I, I want to give credit. He said that uh, they imagine that all the cosplay moving forward is going to find creative ways to incorporate either masks or some other personal protective measure into the cosplay. So, so we're going to see like a lot more stormtroopers or something that you know where it, you, you've got a you've got a mask or some kind of you know, visor in order to avoid this. A lot more Batman I, I, Beyond. Really, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think realistically, and, you know, this is something I've been talking about with my wife because, you know, we're listed as inconclusive by our hospital system, um, which means that they, you know, they think we're infected. But coming out of this, we're going to need to have this rapid test that shows whether or not we have antibodies in order to safely go out into the world, you know, have our kids be out in the world. So if we have this antibody test nationwide, well, you know, they're talking about people have certificates to show for employment so that they can go out safely. Mm-hmm. When, we, when we know that we're tested to that degree, who has it and who doesn't, then I think we can have, you know, conventions safely, mm-hmm. you know. Otherwise, you're going to see, you know, we're going to have to have the kind of social distancing where you can only let 150 people into the convention center at a time. Right. When you've got 50,000 people who want to be inside. Well, hey, that's what San Diego looks like now is, you know, that line waiting outside. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny. I, I can't believe I, I, I wake up every day and I can't believe that I'm literally talking to my kids about a pandemic. You know, like we're living in a pandemic time. Like this is is literally science fiction. It's now reality, you know. Right. You know, with everything that's going on, you know, we want to touch about touch upon your kids just a little bit. You know, dad's a professor, dad's a comic book writer, dad has a bit of a legacy. Do they even care at all? Or they're like, yeah, just dad's sitting in his office writing again. They do in weird ways. Um, everything about them is, my wife and I joke, my wife's an English professor. 
Um, I brought her to comics, but she has enabled my comics career because she's a tenure track professor. So she's always had, we always know where the mortgage is, you know, she's full time. I've been sort of the stay at home dad with the kids half the time while, you know, and then she'll be home half the time. So I, I owe everything in my career to her. Um, as far as our kids go, we joke that, you know, nerd plus nerd equals hyper nerd, mm-hmm. that our children have like everything magnified about us. So my daughter, uh, the, my youngest is presently into all things Muppet related, Jim Henson, Dark Crystal. Uh, she's working on a full body Skeksis costume and she's, she's scary in terms of her artistic skills. I mean, I'm odd at, at what she can do, wow. but if we had not been nerds, she wouldn't have been exposed to that. So, you know, I know that, you know, we've kind of given them the tools that that, that hopefully they'll be able to take into their careers. Uh, My son has a handful of uh, Tron action figures that I just got from Diamond Select uh, to review for my toy blog. And so he's going to review those and he wants to be a filmmaker. And I just let him see, you know, a handful of uh, plague movies recently, Um, Contagion, 28 days later, 28 weeks later, and Shaun of the Dead. And I know that, you know, under a normal household, he probably wouldn't have been exposed to that. So mm-hmm. I, I think that, uh, you know, they're kind of getting it. They've been to a couple conventions where I've signed, and they're like, wow, you're, you know, you have fans. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I'm not just dad, you know? Right. So they, 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 they kind of see it, but then they also go off and, like, they enjoy the, the fruits of being able to run around a convention and do their own thing. So... Um, they've only read a couple of things that I've written, but I think they, they, they appreciate it in the way that, you know, it's kind of rectifying like your dad as being a person outside of being your father. So, right. But, uh, they, they do reap the benefits of, of me having connections. And so, you know, if I'm able to get them something nerdish, you know, they appreciate it then. And you're just not yelling them to finish their math homework. Well, RC, we're also homeschoolers. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, you know, it, which you know, adapting to the COVID nineteen stuff has been easy because we already do this. <laughs> but you know, I think about the homeschooling is it's, it's enabled them to kind of pursue their stuff. I and mean, we used to. I hope we can do it again after all this. But we used to go on like these like summer road trips. And um, about two years ago, my wife had a, a conference, a, a academic conference in Atlanta. And we took my daughter to the Museum of Puppetry, which has, like, the biggest Jim Henson selection from, you know, the Muppet Show through the Dark Crystal through Labyrinth and all that on display. So they kind of get to go to all these really cool places and indulge their their nerd things. And, you know, if my daughter doesn't work in special effects of some kind, I I would be surprised. My son wants to be a director, but, you know, we think that he's probably going to end up being, like, a film historian because... You know, where, where I can rattle off all the, the names and powers of the Legion of Superheroes, my son can tell you every Oscar-winning film through the 19, you know, 1930s to now, you know? So you're starting so, Beatty Productions, you know, from this week. Yeah, really. <laughs> I mean, I think if we can do, like, a family business someday where, you know, my my, my son directs it and my daughter does the production design and... And, you know, does all the special effects. I mean, that would be great. They, they make little films now because of the social distancing. They're running around with my wife's uh, iPad and, you know, using it to make mini movies. And that, that's something actually that I was going to lead into was how as a society, since we're all, you know, almost all of us are on lockdown, unless we like live in Wyoming and we have 140 acres, which I envy those people right now. Um <clears throat> 
how do we retain a sense of creativity or how do we engage our creativity in a time like this? Well, I think we have more time. Uh, you know, a lot of comics publishers have set pencils down on so many projects, but, you know, every time you, you know, you look on the comics news and you see, well, this book is being pushed back a month or two months. I don't think coming out of this, there's any reason for any book not to be on time <laughs> at all. Um, I don't know. I, I, if, if anything, I think that, you know, we really need to maybe turn off the news, you know, turn off the echo chamber and, you know, to get back to that. But we're also dealing with the fact that there's a new normal. You know, it's kind of like 9-11. Like, you know, if you if you were alive before 9-11 and had any cognizance, you know that the world changed. You know, you have to take your shoes off at an airport. You know, when you're walking down the street, if you see a soldier on the corner with a weapon, you realize, well, that's because, you know, we're being protected, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, with COVID-19, like, you know, when, when somebody sticks out their hand and you kind of give them the stink eye, like, nope, not happening, you know. Right. No more fist bumps, no more bro bumps. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to stand over here and give you live long and prosper. <laughs> um, so I, I think that, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I We watched, uh, my wife and I watched the latest season of Ozark, the first episode last night. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of nice just to, to get something that's outside of COVID-19. And I've been trying to, to write things that are independent of, you know, COVID-19 and stuff like that. So. You know, I don't think we'll ever forget it as the mm-hmm. president wants us to do. I think we need to, you know, assimilate it into our, you know, our existence. You know, mm-hmm. it's part of our history. You can't ignore it. But you know, and there's there's lots of stuff to be written. I think if you if you have time now, there's no excuse not to be creative. Mm-hmm. Do you think that you know, like since we mentioned the the comic cons and everything, that at some point everyone will forget about the social distancing? say a year or two years from now and then just be packed like sardines at the theater or at the convention or Disneyland or whatever again? I, I, I think that's probably going to come on an individual basis. I'm not an expert, but I can tell you that having been sick for four weeks and at the height of being sick, like coughing so hard, you know, nearly blacking out or coughing up blood, I'm not going to forget it. You know, right. I'm going to be like, uh, I mean, like, you know, you just keep your distance. I'm going to be wearing my mask. I may have a cooler looking mask because, you know, I'll find some comics, you know, material to put on it. And your daughter uh, will make it for I'm you. Not gonna... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and, you know, with uh, a call out to, you know, anyone who's lost somebody, I think that what, what I've been saying to people you know, throughout this in, in, in like existential discussions is that we're going to know somebody who lost somebody. You know, or we're going to know somebody who died during this. And I think that's what separates this from any other, you know, crisis is that you'll know somebody who's died. So that'll make you think about it in a way, you know, where we're not just going to go back to the, the way it was before. You know, like it's embedded. Like if you, you know, I, getting groceries and then like, you know, creating a, a, a sterile space and then wiping everything down with Clorox wipes, you're going to remember this because it's changed us in these ways. So, as, I don't know, as far as if we can get to the point where we've got a vaccine and herd immunity and all that stuff, and you can go back to conventions, sure, but I don't think I'll ever be in a line where I'm going to allow somebody to be breathing down my neck ever again, yeah. you know, just because right. of the fear of it. So, but I, I don't know. I mean, I like my personal space anyway. You know, give me 15 inches and, mm-hmm. and I'm good. Right. 
But I'm also yeah. the kind of guy that, you know, when I'm standing in line for something, I don't want to hear your conversation on your cell phone. It's really <laughs> loud. You know? Like, I like my, my you know, my, my space to have some privacy to it. Then how do you still want to go to the movie theater? <laughs> well, I think maybe, you know, one airline, I can't recall which one, said that they're going to stop selling the middle seat. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's just we just need to have a little more space. And uh, at the movie theater, maybe they'll say, okay, you know you know how you can go to, you know, uh, a Regal Cinema or a Cinemark and you can pick your seats? Mm-hmm. Maybe they'll just block off like every other seat now right. where we're going to sit, um, unless you're wearing a mask. Uh, you know, I don't know. There, there's, I guess there's just going to be rules, like going to the airport, you know? You're going to have to take off your shoes Yeah. for the safety of everybody. I remember in the days after night when I was working for CrossGen Comics, and occasionally I would fly down about once a month. To, to plot ruse with uh, the creative team, which guys and Mike Perkins and Laura Martin. And there was somebody who was kind of bitching at the airport about having to take off their shoes. And this was after the shoe bomber. Mm-hmm. It was just the added protection and security protocols. And I, I, I wanted to tell them to just, you know, shut the F up. This right. is for everybody. You taking off your shoes is an inconvenience that, right. you know, will not impact you emotionally. So just take off your shoes. Right. And you're not the only one. It's not like they targeted you to do it by yourself. Yeah, yeah. The needs of the society. Like when you live in a society, you got to play by the rules, Mm -hmm. which means, you know, you can't you can't do certain things. You can't yell fire in a crowded theater. You can't go out being unsafe. You know, you got to think about everybody else. Well, you know, before which is, before not, which this, is not socialism. Let me just say that it's not no, socialism. No, 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 that's not being being a considerate human being is not socialism. I completely under I agree with you on that. Um, you know, yeah, bef- it's, it's playing by the rules. Well, before before all of this, you know, I mean, a hundred years ago we had the Spanish flu. Now it's our turn to go through something like this. What? And this is going to sound morbid, and it's going to come out so wrong. But the one thing I'm happy about with this going on, um, other than other than hopefully you know finding a balance of you know human decency, is that it's not just considered happening to those people over there, you know, like uh, I'll throw out you know the the conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians, not not taking side, you know that's a conflict, but people look at it and go, oh, that's over there. You know, that's in the right, Eastern right. Mediterranean, that's in West Asia, that's over there. You know, something happened in right. Italy, that's over there. Oh, that happened in Argentina, that's over there. Now, this right. is everywhere and everyone, so you can't just dismiss it as over there. No, it's over yeah. here. Yeah, I mean, not to get political on you, but I'm happy that the yeah. attempts on certain parts to kind of make this xenophobic mm-hmm. have backfired. Yeah, You know, the attempts to label this the Chinese flu or, you know, that really horrible Kung flu mm-hmm. uh, have really backfired. And, and the, the recent news that they speculate that, you know, that the, the outbreak here was probably traced back to Europe and not yeah. China, you know, makes people rethink. It's like, it's hey, look, it's going to be everywhere. You know, yeah. we all breathe the same air. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that there's a it's not it wasn't really if you've ever read uh, Michael Crichton's uh, The Lost World which is what the, the sequel to Jurassic Park is based You know how Jurassic Park really focused on chaos theory? Mm-hmm. Well, the Lost World novel focused on the fact that, you know, you can, you can take chaos theory and magnify it because we have no borders. Mm-hmm. Borders do not exist. So I can jump on a plane right now, and I can be in Wuhan in 19 hours. And if I have a cold, 
then I'm going to spread that cold through every vector along with me. So, you know, it kind of is a precursor for this notion that we're all going to get it sometime because borders don't exist. We are a global world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not just over there. It's going to come here, and we have to deal with it in a way that brings us together and doesn't divide us. Yeah. So I'm I'm happy that that the attempts to kind of like, you know, try to pin this on one specific people have have backfired because – you know, they they suffered also. We're suffering. Everybody's suffering. Right. And the only thing that's going to get us through it is togetherness, not mm-hmm. togetherness alone. That is right. You know, not uh, not trying it, to say that you know, oh, that this was unleashed because of. And even they, the right. attempts to pin this on the animals. You know, this is right. the bats or the pangolins. You know, like no, it's not that. Yeah. We eat the the meat. You know. Yeah, yeah. I, it's just interesting because. I, I understand cultural divides, you know, because there are certain customs that work in one society that don't work in another. Okay. You know, I understand, you know, religious interpretations and ideologies and whatever else. Okay. But humanity is humanity at the same time. And we have to learn how to respect each other for that. And hopefully that happens at this point, because I, I think, like you said, there was the xenophobia aspect. There's the political aspect of people blaming the other side for not being prepared or, you know, how come our person wasn't in on the discussion, whatever, you know, whatever nonsense it is. Well, it's here. Now we have to deal with it. Now we have to come to terms with it. Now we have to make peace with each other. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, with, with all of this that's going on and everything else and, you know, the industry itself, uh, you had mentioned, you know, Harley Quinn is the example of how can she be, you know, just this goofy teenager in DC superhero girls. And then, you know, the, the, basically the, the sex pot psycho in, in suicide squad. Um, where do we decide that certain characters can belong in certain realms? Like I don't see Harley Quinn being a, you know, a family friendly G level cartoon character, but here she is in this one. And then you watch the Harley Quinn cartoon on the DC universe app and she's even crazier than she is in Suicide Squad. Yeah, I mean that's tough. It's interesting. I think that you can make material that's, that's all ages relatable. I mean, I, I don't have any problem sitting down with my kids, you know, who are again fourteen and thirteen. We're younger when the Marvel movies, you know, were, were really starting to become popular. Mm-hmm. I don't have a problem sitting down with any aspect of those films um, because even like the most, you know, if if it's flirty or there's a four-letter word, then when Captain America swears, mm-hmm. I can have a discussion with my kids and explain it. Um, I took my son to see Man of Steel, and we had a really frank, you know, difficult conversation about why Superman felt the need, spoiler space here, felt, felt you know, that he had to kill General Zod. Mm-hmm. And my argument has always been that Superman would find a way because he's Superman. You know, there's no reason other than disaster porn to show Metropolis being destroyed. Because Superman could have taken that fight to Jupiter, Mm -hmm. you know? He could have taken it to the Gobi Desert. But instead, the building's falling down. And and to be honest, as a guy who lived on the East Coast, you know, I was supposed to be in New York on 9-11 to meet uh, the artist of Robin Year One. And I begged off because it was a beautiful day. And then, you know, it all turned to hell. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't need to see buildings falling down. It, it, It just, it feels, I don't know. And they can punch each other out to the ends of the earth, but right. that that those scenes don't it, it doesn't it doesn't make me feel any better about the heroes and the fact that Superman had no choice 
just felt lazy part of creativity. So right. I, I think that if we can have more, if we can realize that the characters are still regarded as as you know characters that kids should be able to see, as long as we can find a way to separate the worlds. And I think DC's having a harder time with that because you've got the DC TV shows, and then you have iterations of the same characters in movies. It's not the same, you know. And you can you can you know fall back on the multiverse and all that, but it creates a level of confusion. Mm-hmm. You know, Marvel had a plan. They 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 got these actors in uh, you know in contracts for multiple series and multiple roles, with few exceptions. You know, uh, War Machine, right. uh, Don Cheadle taking over for um, um, Terrence Howard. Oh, I'm blanking. Uh, Terrence, Terrence Howard. That's right. Um, so there's there's a continuity there. They're selling toys. They're selling T-shirts. But at the end of the day, this films you feel good when you leave them. You know, mm-hmm. even you know, even uh, Infinity War. Uh, you know, that's a, a, a huge cliffhanger, but they're, they're good experiences. I don't feel that same way about the DC characters. And I, 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 I'm not trying to burn any bridges. It's just that I want my heroes to be heroic, mm-hmm. and I, I want them to be in that if I hand a child a, a superhero action figure, that you know they can understand the history and everything, too. I know what DC's doing with all that, but I don't know. I, I watched Titans on the DC Universe, and I had a hard time with just how violent uh, Robin was. Mm-hmm. You know, like pushing a guy's face through a, a, a car window and then raking it back and forth across the broken glass. Right. It, it seems, it just seems like, you know, two levels too far. And, yeah. you know, or the F-bombs. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I'm notorious in my household for, you know, wearing it appropriately, but I just, you're not gonna, you're not gonna bring in new audiences if that's your default. And I just think it's lazy uh, writing, to be honest. Right. Um, it's 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 a way to be edgy without being edgy creatively, mm-hmm. you know. Right. And the things that you can do with your imagination off panel. I mean, look at Jaws for crying out loud. That's a movie that hinges upon the fact that the, the shark did not work. And right. So what you put in your head and imagined was far worse than was it, it, than the rubber shark that was committed to film. Mm-hmm. And, and you know that level of terror in your own imagination is far worse than what would have been on camera. Yeah, I, I feel like because Marvel has been so successful at betraying optimism, that the forces, at, you know, DC and Warner Brothers thought that that they they could be darker, and that that felt, filled a, a niche that you know maybe didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And so you look at the color palette. I mean, you know, the the, the heroes uh, at DC, the film versions and the TV versions are just so much darker mm-hmm. than the Marvel versions. And I know that there's a level of uh, and realism that they're going for with, you know, that Spandex could never do. But it just, I don't know, Superman isn't optimistic. I, I had a huge problem with Man of Steel where, uh, when young Clark Kent lets his father die. Right. You know? Oh, that drove <laughs> me crazy. Superman. Yeah. Yeah. And it's weird because, you know, I, I showed my son, uh, Superman the movies in 1978. And when, uh, Glenn Ford, who plays Clark Kent, dies of a heart attack, you know, there's a great moment for, Superman and Clark Kent to reflect on the fact that with all his powers, he couldn't save him. So there is that moment of, of humility there. And that works much better, but right. I don't know. It's just that, you know, I, as a Johnny DC, mm-hmm. I, I want the, I want to love these guys and, and just feel good about it. And I don't always feel good. I feel like, you know, oh wait, here's Batman branding somebody in the face. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Too far. Yeah. yeah. 
No, I, I get what you say because, like, like we discussed, you know, I'm also a big DC guy myself, and you know, you've worked for them, and I, I love their books and their cartoons and everything else. Um, it's just weird to see Superman be so dark. Like, I, I would constantly joke that Brian Singer and uh, and Zack Snyder ne- uh, needed color wheels because all their films are so dark. Um, Brian Singer yeah, has his yeah. own issues, which you know, hopefully he doesn't work again because of those issues and uh you know his, the accusations like i'm i'm happy that he's being called out on those um <clears throat> but uh you know without going in into detail and turning it into a discussion about that but uh, like superman returns i didn't think brandon routh got a fair shake as superman but that movie was also too dark for what we got yeah but you know what i, I really liked that movie i have to admit i i, I went to see it and I became a father for the first time after seeing that, and there's parts of that that I really like as a thematic sequel to Superman 2. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I understand where you're going with the, the issues with, uh, with Brian Singer. Right. Um, I've had talks with my students about uh, uh, certain writers who, when you find out that the writer is a racist or a misogynist or, you know, uh, was outed during the Me Too movement for, you know, hitting on their students inappropriately. And then, you know, can we still canonize their work or do we have to ignore it completely? Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'm a guy who saw Michael Jackson in concert when I worked in radio when I was in college. And, you know, does that mean, you know, knowing what I know about Michael Jackson, do I have to expunge every Michael Jackson or Jackson 5 song from my mm-hmm. iPod? You know, like, you, there, there, I think there can be a separation of the art from the art as long as that in supporting the art that you're not in, in the artist to, to continue being, you know. Right. Like, you know, you can appreciate Miramax films knowing that Harvey Weinstein is a monster, mm-hmm. you know, but now that he's separated from, you know, from his company, you know, the money's not going into his pocket to continue right. allowing him to be a monster. Right. Yeah, because um, I, I just thought it was visually too dark and I didn't think Brandon Routh got a fair shake. And I, I was lucky enough to tell Brandon before they made the announcement that he was going to be Superman for the... Uh, for the crisis crossover. Oh, nice. You know, super nice guy too. But, um, you know, the, yeah, he, he, I don't know. I've never met him, but he just looks like a nice guy. Yeah. Like when I see him, he just strikes me as like, well, this guy seems like he's just a nice guy in, yeah. in person. And it isn't just acting. Right. Uh, when, when you get to see Superman the way you did, you know, and you've written the ultimate guide for Superman, is there something that makes you just squirm in your seat going, this isn't the character that I fell in love with. I understand this is an adaptation, but yeah, I mean, what was the Superman book you wrote? The ultimate guide. Oh, I'm sorry. The, uh, the ultimate guide to saving the day and watching Superman let his oh, dad yeah. die in a hurricane or a tornado. Sorry. Well, that was, um, a little backstory. I wrote uh, for QuickBooks uh, the Batman, uh, handbook, which is, uh, I had to interview, I don't know, order of 40 or 50 experts in order to write realistically how you could do every Batman skill, from making a Batcave to driving on two wheels. I talked to Hollywood stuntmen, to gymnasts on how to do a backflip, that sort of thing. And we had to put a disclaimer in the book so that people wouldn't actually do it and hurt themselves or worse. <laughs> okay. And uh, I, I think if you Google it on or on YouTube, uh, a couple college students like do like how to take a kick to a head and knock each other out, you know, <laughs> stupidly. Um, but it was fun the Batman side because the Batman stuff is it's realistic uh, in writing how bullets 
ball as opposed to ricochet. Mm. And then when I got to Superman, it was really tough. You can't replicate his superpowers. But you can do, like, real-life saving measures. So you'll see in that book there's chapters on how to, to free yourself from a tide uh, if you're swimming in the ocean or how to get out of quicksand or how to deal with a third-degree burn. Mm-hmm. And so that became more of a, you know, just real-life life hacks for, you know, saving people, uh, as, as, you know, in a real Superman kind of way, minus flying. In this mm-hmm. So, it, you know, in that, that scene in the film, it bothers me in that if he's faster than a speeding bullet, he would find a way. Right. And it, it just it, it asks the audience to assume that I, I think that the problem, I think maybe it's a function of the, the 90s and the 2000s, We've had to deconstruct the superheroes and find fatal flaws in them, and it goes back to the Flash having to have some kind of, you know, moment of, of just utter, you know, horror in his background, like his mother being murdered, to understand why he's a hero. And I've met so many people over the years that are good people and do good things just because they're good people, because they know it's the right thing. You know, it comes out of whatever religion. That you know, every religion has moral tenets, mm-hmm. and you know most of them have a, a golden rule, which is do unto others. And so I think that that film really kind of made Superman just flawed. Like it, it kind of it gamed the system against him. You know, he loses at every turn. He loses his father because of inaction. Has to murder the villain. Uh, he he knocks down an entire city, and wow. You know, mm-hmm. Like, does Superman get to win? Right. You know? Yeah. As opposed to, you know, Superman the movie where Superman literally figures out how to turn back time to save the woman that he loves. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hokey. He turns the earth, you know, he reverses its direction. But, you know, it stands up. I mean, you watch that and you've got a lump in your throat every single time. Right. Yeah. It's, it's just two totally different worlds at this point, and it, it's kind of heartbreaking to see, you know, like, what was the? Uh, they did a DC animated feature about it. It was um, Superman versus the Elite, and it was based on the comic. Um, you know, um, basically, do we still need Superman? And and to right. see, you know, I understand the existential crisis and wanting to to tell that story, but do we really want Superman that flawed? I mean, he's interesting when he's depowered, but like I thought, it was also more interesting to see him become super dad in the comics. You know, yeah, and, and yeah, now that's why I like Superman returns. Yeah. And then just sitting there and his biggest concern now is Jonathan Kent and how he didn't have to worry about himself because, Hey, you know, I'm virtually indestructible. And if I die, I die a hero's death, but I have this 10 year old kid or this 11 year old kid that now everything has to be hyper-focused on. Yeah. yeah, you know, I used to love those old stories. Uh, maybe you read them back in the when they were first published in the seventies, the Super Sons, like mm-hmm. the original Super Sons. Yeah, and it was it was back when Superman and Batman in World's Finest were like treated as best friends. Mm-hmm. You know, not you know adversaries. And the, the original Super Sons story was a a virtual reality program before we had virtual reality, mm-hmm. in which Superman and Batman imagined what it would be like, and the you know the groovy hijinks they would get into. And I just always loved that notion that, hey, these guys are thinking. It's, yeah. At the end of the day, they're not so doom and gloom that they're not thinking about settling down and having families. Right. So it's that inherent <clears throat> optimism. 
and the will to do good. And I think, you know, even in the times that we're in, when I watch the news and I see you know, just the sacrifices that you know, medical uh, people, um, doctors and nurses and, and EMTs and, and doctors coming out of retirement to help and just all the things, the sacrifices that people do because, you know, every single life matters. And it's just so it's so gratifying to see. And I wish that, uh, you know, I, I wish that we, we saw that more in the media, uh, comics media, than, you know, some of the stuff that we see. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, if we could get back to those roots just every now and again, then it's not just the kind of self-gratifying entertainment, you know, the punching and kicking and all that. You know, I think in the 90s, we, we were edging so close to it being almost pornographic with the costumes and, the, you know, the proportions of muscles. Everything, <laughs> that it just, you know, I'm glad that we got away from that right. because it, it, then the stories get to return to good stories. And if, uh, it's not, I don't think crossovers are going to save us. I think good stories. Mm-hmm. You know, people are going to go back to, to reading the good stories and of the characters they love. Right. Do you think we'll have issues like when 9-11 happened and, you know, New York was hit and we got the those comic issues of, you know, our heroes being <clears throat> being in awe of the first responders then? Uh, do you think we'll get, you know, issues like that coming out in comics where we'll have special editions like that as well? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. If I, I'm, I'm in support of stuff like that as long as the profits go to uh, the people that need it, you know, right. the, the families, doctors and nurses who've died during this. Uh, my, I, I always feel like there's a separation. Like, you know, Spider-Man and Superman weren't, you know, they weren't in New York City on 9-11, mm-hmm. you know? The heroes were all the, the first responders and the cops and the and who died right. when the towers collapsed and, and the people in the towers who died and the people in the planes who died. Um, I, I don't know how comics can make sense of this in a way that, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I always hesitate to go down that road. I mean, after 9-11, I was fantasizing about writing a story in which, you know, Osama bin Laden is, you know, gleefully, you know, going over the fact of, you know, how much he had accomplished as he sat in his mountain hideaway and then he got really hot. And, you know, you see, like, you know, his, his clothes start to smolder and then as the camera pulls back and the frames pull back out of the comic, you see Superman in low Earth orbit with his eyes glowing. Mm-hmm. You know? And it was just sort of like the, you know, just the, the fan service of, you know, Superman finding and ending Osama bin Laden. But, of course, Superman can't kill, you right. know? You know. So I don't know. I don't know what comics would add to this, mm-hmm. other than the fact that it, if it could be about the real people, you know, right. and then maybe have the, the characters in in you know cameo appearances. But there's the stories that I'm hearing on the news are just they're they're dark. I think we have to tell those real stories. Yeah. No, and no, I'd, I'd love to see that. Sorry, when you when you brought up the the Superman trying to roast Osama bin Laden, the one thing that came to mind was. Uh, the old two-panel comic of where he just picked up Hitler and Stalin and dropped them off in Nuremberg for the trials and going, here you guys go. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, I, I think those are, I love those covers, you know, Superman punching Hitler. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the the ones with uh, the Japanese, of course, are really super racist, and, you know, in their depictions. Right. Um, you know, and they don't hold up over time at all. But this uh, this notion that the, the superheroes were, you know, supporting war bonds or you got Batman and Robin Manning machine guns and stuff like that. I, you know, I think in the time that they're they're kitschy, but 
I, today I just think that, you know, any, any stories about this have got to be truthful. Mm-hmm. You know, we live in a time where uh, the notion between fiction and reality are, is so blurred because of, you know, factors in, uh, you know, on, on one side or the other. And that, that there's such a, we have to have truth, you know. And I just say, you know, I don't, I, 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 any Superman benefit comic book, we just have to focus on the doctors. Absolutely. You know, like real life doctors. I, I'd love to see them name checked in the comics. And, you know, what, I think the one thing that's missing on our news reports every day is that, you know, we're well over 16,000 people who have died and there's no moment of silence at any of the, the White House press briefings for the, the people who died the day before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, there are some media now that are publishing, showing like the stories of the people who died. You know, again, we're all going to know somebody. I, I think their stories are important. We got to hear that stuff. Uh, well, not to get too maudlin on you. No, it's all right. But the, that's a powerful way to to put this interview to a close, since we've almost been going at it for two hours. Um, yeah, just, it's been great. Just before I let you go, what are you working on now that you can talk about that isn't an NDA? And uh, where could people find you on Twitter, since that seems that you're the most sociable? Well, um, if you can ignore my political rants, <laughs> um, I'm at uh, at uh, Scott M. Beatty, uh, Amazon Matthew. Uh, my blog is uh, scottbeatty.blogs.com. And again, I've been putting up a lot of, uh, you know, like old content. I actually also did some video stuff. I, I wrote some Transformers and G.I. Joe animation years ago that I've been throwing up there. But it's all, it's not that it's in the public domain, but you can find it for free on YouTube. So I don't think I'm treading on any trademarks by posting it. It's, it, I, I call them viral videos in order to help, you know, with social isolation. So those are my two, uh, my two major social media places. Um, the things that I have coming out right now, uh, Robin Year One came out in trade paperback, and that was a, a literal reprint of the deluxe edition, which includes a lot of great pencil and ink art from Javier Polito and Marcos Martin and Robert Campanella, uh, the artists, and that's, uh, of course, co-written with Chuck Dixon. Um, that's in stores now. The uh, Also in stores is uh, Alfred Pennyworth. Uh, it's a Batman Allies trade paperback, and I'm happy for that one because it, it, it's like 75 years of Alfred history, but it includes uh, a two-part story I did for Detective Comics that shows Alfred's uh, origin as an agent of MI6. And if you've seen the um, the Pennyworth television show, uh, that certainly takes some liberties with some things that I helped to establish in the comics. So that's out. And again, I mentioned uh, the Nightwing Year One trade paperback. Uh, that's that's an interesting one because Nightwing Year One sold out back in 2005. They made one trade paperback. And it sold out. And you can, if you try to find it on eBay, you're going to spend about 150 bucks for the trade. So, finally, we're getting it back in press. And um, the next things are the Marvel Mini Book of Heroes and Mini Book of Villains, which uh, are slated for uh, just the beginning of 2021 right now, unless unless things open up more safely before then. So, other than that, I'm looking at new stuff to write. Um, I mentioned on my blog a, uh, a post-apocalyptic apocalyptic, uh, comedy that Chuck Dixon and I uh, co-wrote for IDW Entertainment that has, uh, has an interesting backstory, and we're trying to get that into press at some point. Um, so we just can find out like what happened to that and where it is. And, and beyond that, uh, there's, there's nothing currently in the hopper that I can speak of. 
but uh, certainly, you know, the greatest hits are out there, and and I'm looking around for uh, for new projects. Perfect. Scott Beatty, thank you so much for your time. Take care of yourself. I'm glad that you and your kids are feeling better. My condolences to, to you and your wife on the passing of her father. Uh, you know, these are trying times, and you've definitely lived through them. Well, thank you, R.C., uh, but I think that I just want to say that we're all living through these trying times. And so, like I said, we're, we're all in this together, and it's nice to, to connect with, you know, a fellow fan like yourself and, and hopefully fellow readers out there. And, you know, stay strong, people. We'll all get through this. Perfect. Thank you so much, man. I greatly appreciate it.